It's Thursday, March 10th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The U.S. and European allies have done as much as they can to support Ukraine, except for getting their militaries involved. The challenge is not engaging in fighting with Russia for fear it could spur World War III. Military analysts think that the risk of use of nuclear weapons is low, but it's not a chance anyone wants to take. Stephen Fidler, Bureau Chief at Large for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how the West continues to help without getting directly involved in the fighting. Next, a sad follow-up to a story that was a medical first. David Bennett, the first patient ever to receive an animal organ genetically modified to prevent rejection in a person, has died. He died two months after being implanted with a pig heart. The heart was working fine for weeks, but Bennett's health deteriorated in the last few days. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today, joins us for what we know. Finally, Disney has been hearing from upset fans angry about the high cost of tickets and fees for line-cutting apps that used to be free. Pent-up demand is setting people to both Disney World and Disneyland in droves, but many increasingly feel that fun trips are out of reach without some serious investment. Anna Sampson, travel reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Fighter jets at the disposal of the United States government, um, departing from a U.S.-NATO base in Germany to fly into airspace contested with Russia uh, over Ukraine raises some serious concerns for the entire NATO alliance. Joining us now is Stephen Fidler, Bureau Chief at Large for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. My pleasure. Well, we wanted to keep exploring what's going on in Ukraine, obviously, with Russia invading. It's a very, very tense situation. And the challenge for the West right now, the United States and our European allies over there, is how much involvement are we really getting into? You know, that we've been doing our part with sanctions, all this stuff that only goes so far. You know, Ukraine has kind of been on its own for the most part, when it comes to the fighting there, nobody from the U S or these other European allies or NATO forces want to engage in combat with Russian forces, because then that could lead to something bigger world war three, right? Everybody's trying to avoid that at all costs. So this is the fine line that we're walking right now. Stephen, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing. There are two things that are going on. I think one is the the US and the West are pouring in defensive weapons to Ukraine and as well as sanctioning Russia, you know, really heavily, they're they're also helping Ukraine financially. But most importantly, they're sort of weapons for the defense of, of Ukraine. And that, you know, in the recent past has been considered a sort of Russian red line. You know, countries like Germany have been very sensitive about doing that. Now, that seems to be a sort of a red line that's being ignored now. There are significant amounts of weaponry going into Ukraine from, particularly over the Polish border, from the US and other Western allies. But there's another red line that the Russians have kind of drawn, and that is don't impose a no-fly zone and don't get your forces involved in Ukraine because that will we will take that to mean that you're, you know, in combat with us, right. and that could lead, uh, and there's a concern there that that's going to lead, things could escalate to the point that, you know, the the threat of nuclear weapons is there. Now, the threat isn't really regarded as very high, but it's there in the background. And uh, what we're seeing is the Russians sort of doing pretty badly militarily in Ukraine, if they were to confront NATO, they would be, you know, a significant disadvantage. It looks like they would uh, have a very hard time 
So all that uh, Putin may have left of that is, is, is a sort of a nuclear threat. And while that is unlikely to carry that out, most people I spoke to think it's a small risk that Western governments don't want to take. So they're mm-hmm. not looking, they're looking to avoid a no-fly zone, basically, because that would bring U.S. forces, NATO forces into direct confrontation and combat with not only uh, Russian airplanes, but also ground forces, you know, cruise missiles, potentially cruise missile sites and that kind of thing. You made mention in the article about the different ways that a no-fly zone can be imposed. Uh, So there's a few different things that could happen, but all of it seems to that it will lead that uh, there could be some conflict. That's right. I mean, you could you could say, as I think uh, some, some prominent individuals have in the U.S., you know, just protect humanitarian corridors. Or you could make it broader and say, you know, you would stop all flying over over the territory of Ukraine. Or you could say you stop all flying and any kind of missile strikes and that kind of thing from the territory of Ukraine. But each one of those things is likely to bring you at some point into uh, conflict with with the Russian armed forces. And only if uh, the Russians say, okay, we choose not to contest it, uh, would that not happen? And that seems yeah. you know, unlikely at the moment. There was also this plan that Poland was floating. You know, we'd give them some of our old jets, then we can get some new jets from the United States. But there's a lot of logistical hurdles with this. It also kind of, you know, one of these red lines that you were talking about that Russia might say, well, now you're really supplying Ukraine with weapons and other things. Now this is more of an escalation. The Pentagon kind of shot that plan down. They said it was not a tenable one, something that could actually work. And uh, you also made mention in the article the something else to do might be to supply them with some more Stinger surface-to-air missiles. That might be the wiser option to go with. I think the Polish jets, of course, um, were Soviet-era jets, and they're sort of MiGs from the Soviet era, that of the sort that Ukrainian pilots fly. So, you know, ostensibly that could they could be, you know, sent one way or another into into Ukraine and you know, on the face of it, uh, Ukrainian pilots could use them and fly them. But there are a lot of questions about that. One is, you know, you might have to get sort of naked NATO kid out of there, you know, and the Russian, you know, there may be issues about communications, Ukrainian communications and that kind of thing. And there's a question of how do they get into Ukraine? How do they fly them there? And the Russians have said, you know, if you use foreign airfields, if Ukrainian forces use foreign airfields, then we'll consider that a, you know, a, a major escalation. So I think this is something the U.S. and the Poles have been talking about for a while. And the Poles have essentially said, well, if you want us to do that, uh, Washington, you can take responsibility for it. And I think people got a bit ahead of their skis. And I don't yeah. think in the short term anyway that that supply of those those jets is likely to happen. Now, on the surface to air missiles, you know, we've seen in the past, you know, in the 1980s in Afghanistan, for example, that surface to air missiles are really significant, can be significant in, in conflict and possibly led to the Soviets uh, kind of make, you know, losing that in effectively in Afghanistan. So it may be a low risk and effective approach to keep supplying uh, more of those weapons, surface-to-air missiles, anti-tank missiles, and that kind of thing into Ukraine. That doesn't appear at the moment to cross Russian red lines, and it might help the uh, you know Ukraine defend them themselves significantly. So that may be a that's according to the military 
uh, specialists I've spoken to, uh, that is that is something that may may be more effective with less risk. Stephen Fiddler, bureau chief at large for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, many thanks. But he did seem to be doing really well. He watched the Super Bowl, sang along with America the Beautiful, was progressing in physical therapy. So people were hopeful that he would continue to do well, but sadly he did not. Joining us now is Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Karen. Thanks for having me. Well, we have an update, a sad update, actually, to a story that we did in January. This is the story of David Bennett. He's 57 years old. He was the first patient ever to receive an animal organ genetically modified to prevent rejection in a person. This was a pig heart that he got put in him. It lasted him about two months, but his health deteriorated in recent days and uh, the hospital where he was at announced his death. Karen, what do we know about this? We don't know that much yet. Uh, We don't know the cause of death. We don't know if the organ failed slowly or if something else went on. He had been bedbound for months before the procedure, so it may just be that he was so weak that his body couldn't recover. But he did seem to be doing really well. He watched the Super Bowl, sang along with America the Beautiful, was progressing in physical therapy. So people were hopeful that he would continue to do well, but sadly he did not. Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, we don't know exactly what happened just yet, but for a time, the heart was pumping. Everything was working according to plan. Right. He took to him. He was doing fine and uh, no no sign of rejection of the organ. So the immune process seemed to be working properly. So, again, we don't really know yet. There's going to be a scientific paper in a couple of months explaining it, but we don't really know yet what happened. So this is definitely at least a setback for Mr. Bennett, uh, the unfortunate thing, right, for him for and sure. his family. but. Overall, still, the operation was hailed as a success. Uh, You know, this whole thing, the process is called xenotransplantation, where we're putting animal parts in people. And, uh, you know, at the time when we talked about it, everybody was, you know, really, really excited about the future possibilities of what could happen with these types of processes. In medicine, being first isn't really so great. They really had no idea what would happen to him. And he did get two extra months. He got some more time with his family. He never did get to see his dog Lucky again, which he had been hoping to do. But he he did get a, a bit of a life extension. And the hope is that what can be learned from his experience can be transferred to the next patient and the one after that. Yeah, we have uh, some 41,000 Americans that received transplanted organs last year. Uh, about 3,800 of those were heart transplants and, uh, and replacements that people needed. So obviously, you know, when something like this is successful, people are really excited about the potential to get all these people that are on these transplant lists help. There was some ethical concerns raised at the time. A couple of things. One, that, uh, you know, uh, animal advocates saying that we shouldn't uh, raise animals to be sacrificed for human benefits. And the other part was the objection to Bennett himself, who served some prison time for attacking a man with, with a knife. At the time that we spoke about this, that part of the story hadn't come out just yet. Right. So doctors will say that they treat the patient in front of them. They don't care about the patient's history. It, it was immaterial to them what his past was. And, you know, as it turned out, and, and as is generally true with medical first, in some ways, one could argue that you might not want the leading citizen of the day to be the first person um, because they didn't expect, they didn't necessarily expect a long-term positive outcome there. You know, the reason why Mr. Bennett chose to go through this route, too, was 
because he was rejected to be on the heart transplant list. He wasn't following doctor's orders. So, uh, you know, they say, I think there's, they, I mean, they have some stats uh, that go with it. If uh, people don't follow the doctor's orders, their chances at uh, overcoming and, and lasting a long time with transplanted organs are not very well if you're not following all the rules. So that was another reason why he wasn't even eligible for the heart transplant in the first place. Right, exactly. You quoted the statistic earlier about the number of people on the heart transplant list, but many people never make it that far for either hearts or kidneys or other organs because they don't meet the strict definitions, the strict requirements for qualifying for an organ transplant. So the hope is that if xenotransplantation can be shown to work, that it could expand the potential for people to, to get a new organ. You know, the last few times that we talked about, they were kidneys that were transplanted into humans, although I think they were brain-dead patients. There was two occasions where they were brain-dead patients, but the kidneys did start producing urine, so they were working. Uh, obviously, this time we were talking about the heart. It lasted two months. But, uh, you know, how much more time and effort are they, are they going into this avenue? Well, there are a handful of teams in the U.S., and one in Germany, potentially some in China, who are working on this in Japan, solid organ transplants from pigs, gene-edited pigs. So I think, if anything, this Mr. Bennett's example will encourage them to keep trying. Hearts and kidneys are the first organs because they're the most commonly transplanted and the easiest, I guess, to get to work. So those expect the most progress the soonest in those two organs. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. When passengers come to Star Cruiser today, they're going to encounter a Halcyon that has been recently restored to its former glory, the way it really looked in the earliest days of its voyages across the galaxy. The way it's meant to be seen. The way it's meant to be seen. <laughs> joining us now is Hannah Sampson, travel reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Hannah. Thanks for having me. Well, I want to start off by uh, saying that uh, I grew up in Southern California, so I have a very special relationship with Disney and Disneyland. You know, it was one of our go-to theme parks when I was growing up. It was right in our backyard, and, uh, you know, it was always one of those fun times. You know, our mom would wake us up really early in the day, so we'd get there right when it opened. We'd stay all the way through the entire uh, end of the day to get the most bang for our buck. But what we're seeing right now is Disney facing a lot of criticism, a lot of uh, anger for some fa from fans about uh, all, a lot of the changes that have gone on recently. Disney's been investing billions of dollars into the product, especially after the pandemic and, you know, the theme parks are reopening. But a lot of the stuff, uh, uh, certain things that were, um, were free, things like fast passes and whatnot, now are being replaced with fees, certain fees so you can cut the lines. Obviously, the annual pass thing has been changed up a little bit and uh, people aren't, aren't very happy with what's going on. So, Hannah, tell us a little bit more about it. So I think one of the things is that people stayed away for a long time because they had to. The parks were closed for a while, and then um, they felt that they needed to during the earlier parts of the pandemic. And now that they're coming back, they're finding giant crowds. So that's kind of one of the doors in the face that they're running into. Oh, my God, the parks are so crowded. And then on top of it, they're finding these changes to, especially in Florida, the, the once beloved free fast pass system that people like learned and mastered over the course of many years. It's now this whole new complicated system with an app called Genie Plus and you have to pay and you have to be on your phone all day kind of checking for when you can make a reservation for the next ride. A lot of people that I spoke to found it overwhelming and we're super bummed that it costs money now. In Orlando, I guess it costs like 15 bucks at Disneyland in California. It's 20 bucks for that Genie mm -hmm. Plus system. 
Exactly. And that's not even the top tier, the most premium rides. That doesn't even get you that. You have to pay an additional amount of money for the super, super popular ones. So I heard the term nickel and dimed from people. And that's something, you know, you're used to associating with budget airlines. But people are really now applying that to Disney because they feel like there's a hand in their pocket trying to take a little bit more of that money at every turn. And that's just one of the elements that are frustrating people. But I think that's one that's really getting the brunt of the ire. Yeah, you know, for a lot of people, right, uh, Disneyland, Disney World, it's a fun vacation or a quick getaway if you're a local resident. And very quickly, prices are going up so much, it's becoming more of an investment almost. I think one of the people said it's tough. You know, you're starting to plan stuff for your family. And if you're traveling and you need hotel accommodations, the prices really start stacking up and and they feel like it could be out of the reach for a lot of American families. And for Disney, you want to fight that perception that it's a rich person's thing to be able to go enjoy the theme park. So it's a, a balance that they're trying to strike there. For sure. And Disney is eager to point out that their entry-level price hasn't changed since 2019. Granted, their entry-level price is $109 a day in Florida or $104 in California. So it's not like it's chump change. But, you know, they say we haven't hiked that. We really want to be available for people on, on multiple kinds of budgets and you can do the kind of trip that you can afford. So if you have the money and don't have the flexibility to come at the cheapest, least busy times, then, you know, you can pay all these upgrades to skip lines and you can stay at the fancy hotels and get the privileges associated with that. But if you don't, then there are 22 or so days in August and September when you can come pay the lowest fee and not have the same level of crowding. So, I mean, is that attainable even for many people? No, (laughs) no, it's not. But that is attainable for more people. The numbers are still bearing out for them. People are paying more per capita when they go to the parks. The attendance is not falling right now. So all of this is really working in their favor. They just uh, even uh, created this new Star Wars uh, Galactic uh, Star Cruiser experience where you get to stay in a themed hotel and all that. But that's expensive. Uh, You know, whether you're trying to do like a family, like a three person family, that could be almost $5,000. Even just for a two person uh, stay there, it's a couple thousand dollars. For three people, if you're going at the cheapest possible time, it's about $5,300. If it's two people, 4800 or so. That's not for everybody at all. That's You're really going to want to be a super Star Wars fan. You're going to want to have a lot of disposable income. And you're going to want to spend two nights essentially role-playing your place in this <laughs> universe of Star Wars experiences and blue shrimp. And I don't, I won't put any spoilers in here, but it's all very like in the realm of Star Wars. Definitely. I've and seen some videos. Who, it it, it yeah. actually looks pretty cool, but you're right. I mean, to your point, it's a huge investment if you want to go uh, have fun and, and, and be in that world. That is not an experience that's going to be for everyone. And, and honestly, they wouldn't have capacity for everyone. It's such a small thing that, is two nights long that will they have enough people to pay the prices they're asking right now? We'll have to see how the pricing changes over time. But for now, they're, they're keeping the prices that they've announced from the beginning. Hannah Sampson, travel reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.